0: I wanna ask you to take a survey this morning to get started, just two questions. And uh, I want you to be honest. Nobody's gonna know your answer but you and God. But uh, I wanna ask you two questions and I don't want you to write down what you think is the right answer. I want you, as best you can, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in you what you really believe, okay? That's the only way this survey works. Here's the first question. It's a statement, and you're going to indicate. You strongly agree, you agree, you're neutral, strongly disagree, or disagree. Here's the statement. Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. Just jot down on your, your page there, maybe numbers one to five. One means you Strongly agree with that statement. He is not a living being, but a symbol of evil or that you strongly disagree. Got it? Second question. The Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's power or presence, but is not a living entity. Strongly agree, agree, neutral, disagree, strongly disagree. What do you think? All right, got it down? Barna did a survey in 2009, asked a large number of professing Christians. So these are people who would say, I've trusted in Christ. Here's here's how they answered those questions. See where you landed in this. As far as Satan not being a living being, but uh, being just a symbol of evil, 40 strongly agree, 40%. 19% agree with that statement. 8% aren't sure. 35% believe that Satan is a real being. 35%. Holy Spirit, 38% believe that he is just a symbol. Not real, not actual, just a symbol. 20%. Agree with that, with less strong strength, but 9% are neutral. And then you can see at the bottom, 34% of people who have trusted supposedly in Christ don't believe there's a Holy Spirit. So you can see the obvious problem here. These are so important for us to wrestle with. And we're in a culture and in the South where you just nod your head. And we're not nodding our heads this morning, okay? We're going to come straight, just straight in conflict with uh, our professions and what we actually believe. I want to mention some resources to you that I think could be really helpful in this topic that we're discussing this morning. Two books with the same title called The Invisible War. Uh, One is by a guy named Chip Ingram. The other is by a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Both fantastic resources uh, when it comes to um, spiritual warfare. Um, I gave two sermons in 2016, one in August and one in September um, one was on the problem of evil, which is related to this, and the other on the reality or the doctrine of hell. So you can find those on our website. Maybe that'd be something great for you to go back and listen to and consider. And then lastly, a book that just came, uh, was just published this year Spiritual Warfare in the Storyline of Scripture by William Cook and Chuck Lawless. These guys have done a great job basically doing a survey, a biblical survey from Genesis to Revelation saying, where do we see this concept of spiritual warfare in the Bible? And let's find out what the Bible tells us about it. Instead of, as we often do, and that survey indicates, we just sort of think things we conclude things, we just come up with some kind of idea about what this is or isn't, and we believe because we thought it, it must be true. So these guys are saying, no, let's, let's go to the Bible and let's see what it has to say about unseen things. Here's, what they, here's how they define spiritual warfare. It is the ongoing battle between the church and the devil and his forces. So they believe that Satan is a real thing. With the church standing in the armor of God, defensively resisting the devil, and offensively proclaiming the gospel in a battle already won. Good definition. It's it's far more comprehensive than that, but that's a great place for us to start. Now, as we come to Luke 11, the passage that we're studying today, we're going to come across a spiritual skirmish. It's going to be between Jesus and an unseen enemy. There is a gentleman that is possessed, and he is mute, and there is a crowd watching on probably the disciples are with him but there is a larger crowd that is seeing all of this go down and this passage is all about the interaction around what Jesus does now let me give you a couple of quick thoughts before we look at the text itself this text is saying that there is a supernatural miraculous event that took place It is saying that there are unseen spiritual beings in existence. So, like, no matter what, that's what the story's about. Now, here's the question. Did it or did it not actually happen? And that's related to your view of this book. If this book was just inspired by man, it was just a bunch of smart people who were kind of philosophical and had some interesting devoted ideas and they put a Bible together to, to kind of foster religion around the world. If that's all that it is, then we can dismiss this story and everything that it implies because I just, I've never experienced that. I just don't think there is anything else. I think it's just, you know, physical stuff. We can do that if this was just written by man. But if it was written by God, if it is God's word as it claims to be, then we can't dismiss anything about this story. In fact, we need to let this story radically shift how we see everything in life. This event, if it's authentic, and obviously we believe that it is, it confronted all who witnessed it profoundly with the unseen realm. And I was having a conversation with some guys this last week as I was preparing, and I just, I thought, you know what? I don't know what the first century was like like experientially, but I do know what this century is like. And we are bombarded with spectacular stuff all the time. And I really do wonder sometimes if because of all the technology and media and activity and just all that's going on, I wonder if the unseen realm is even more obscured than it's ever been because we're so fascinated with all the glitter. Here's how the passage begins with a demonic eviction. Um, You've heard the term exorcism and I... I just say that word because that's what it is, but immediately I know all of you have all kinds of things come into your mind, maybe media, uh, movies that you've seen or books that you've read or whatever, but that's what it's called. It's an exorcism. I love de- demonic eviction because the whole framework of this is like a house, a tenant, and the tenant gets thrown out. So let's look at verse 14. Now he, that, was, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So as I mentioned a minute ago, a miracle is unquestionably recorded here, and it's verified in that setting by the fact that there was a man who literally could not speak. His, his disability was associated with spiritual possession and after Jesus cast out the demon, he can speak. So nobody can deny it. And that's what's so interesting about this is nobody in the story is denying that it happened. Don't miss that. Everybody there is going, yep. The guy was possessed. Jesus told the demon to get out. It's gone. The man's speaking. That's not what's in contention here. What they do is they they start to wonder about how did he do that? And there's only two options according to them. Either he was enabled, empowered by God, or he was enabled or empowered by God a being that he calls Beelzebul. Now, who is that character? Um, the origin of that title goes back to uh, the Canaanites who inhabited what later became the promised land for the people of Israel. So that whole region is called Canaan. And they had a god that they called um, something similar to Beelzebul, and it meant um, exalted one. Specifically, the, the god was named Baal, and you've probably heard lots of references to the prophets uh, arguing and fighting over this, um, this god named Baal. Now, the idea of the prince of demons gives you this exalted idea that, the, that Baal was an exalted god, Now, some of you in your Bibles, maybe in an old NIV or maybe in a King James, you'll have the word Beelzebub, which is just a a difference. It's often associated with or interchanged with Beelzebul. Um, This is actually a mockery of uh, the Philistine god of Ekron. He's uh, mentioned in 1 Kings. Um, This was just honestly kind of a way of disdaining the god And in this instance, Jesus, who they're saying was enabled by this God, uh, Beelzebub means Lord of the flies. And you can think manure, flies, manure. That's the idea. Um, Basically, it's just a simple accusation. They're saying that Jesus is uh, getting his power from demonic forces instead of divine forces. That's the bottom line. Now, if it's true, we got a serious problem if Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, right? That, that's a problem. That ruins everything. So Jesus begins to respond and he identifies this character as Satan. Now, in in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there was a Hebrew word Satan which could generally just mean accuser. But specifically, it could uh, speak of the devil, God's enemy. Um, We see in the book of Job, Satan interacting with God around (laughs) tempting Job, and uh, he is the adversary to God and to Job. Um, We don't have a whole lot in the Old Testament, but there is one reference in Ezekiel 28 where um, there's a description of a king, the king of Tyre, but when you read it, it sure sounds a lot like somebody else. And specifically, most will say it is sort of an encrypted reference to Satan um, in his origins. Satan is a created being, and here's what it says in Ezekiel 28, just a little brief snippet from that passage. He began as the signet of perfection, Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. Basically, the bottom line of Satan was that he believed he was superior to his creator, even though he was a created being and was therefore cast out of heaven. Here are some New Testament references to this being. Jesus himself describes him this way in John 8. "'He was a murderer from the beginning "'and does not stand in the truth "'because there is no truth in him. "'When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, "'for he is a liar and the father of lies.'" Three times in that same gospel, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. So he was cast out of heaven, and he was given authority over the world. He still serves under the sovereignty, the authority of God. But, but make no mistake, he has great power and authority in this context, in this world, until Christ returns. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2 and he calls him the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 he also describes men in the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will in 2 Timothy 2 lastly Peter warns in uh, 1 Peter 5 our adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour So let's just real quickly go back to our survey. You may be uncomfortable thinking about the existence of Satan. But if you're a believer, you don't get an option. (laughs) He is your adversary. And the Bible says he's as real as the chair that you're sitting in. And so then you and I have to come to terms with that. What do we do? If he is real, what do we do about that? And we're gonna get some some good instruction here. I love what uh, Professor Robert Pine says just as a general response to Satan. Our response should be somewhere in between arrogance and fear. Like, let's not be arrogant, but let's not be afraid. We need to respect his power which he does have, but we do not need to respect his authority. That is a great insight. Now, despite the blatant contempt that this crowd has for Jesus, again, they're not denying the miracle. They're talking about the source of his power. Jesus isn't defensive. He is just, he sees right through it all. In fact, it says that he knows their thoughts. He understands what they're doing here. Um, there is elsewhere in the New Testament talks about the enemy of this world blinding the eyes of people, obscuring their vision of what is right and what is true. And Jesus knows that. So he introduces to them a kingdom concept, kingdoms in conflict. Look at verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And then he asks or makes three statements. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." And lastly, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus does this interesting thing in reply. He starts with the general and moves toward the specific. So his general statement is, hey guys, let's just think about this for a second. Any kingdom, Rome or any other that we know of, If it is warring against itself, how long do you think that kingdom's gonna last? Not long. A kingdom divided against itself, it will surely fall. Literally, its house will fall upon house. It's done. Division leads to destruction. That's the big general statement. Then he goes a little more specific and he says, so if that's true, then let's think about Satan's kingdom. If Satan is fighting against Satan, then his kingdom's history, he's in trouble. But that's what they're accusing, they're saying, Jesus, even though we know you claim all this other stuff, you're being enabled by Satan to cast out demons. And Jesus is just kind of simply saying, doesn't that sound kind of strange, kind of absurd, kind of backward? Why would Satan cast out his own? Great question. So he's moving a little more specific. Then he gets to the fact that there were some among that crowd, he says, sons of theirs, who were also casting out demons. Now, we don't know anything about those men except that they were able to do what Jesus had just done. And his argument basically is, so are they casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul? Like you claim that I am. See, you can't have it both ways. So they would have attributed what those guys had done to God. Probably celebrated. Why oh, isn't it beautiful? To see the kingdom of God at work. He said, "If you say that about them, you have to say it about me. Or if I'm doing this with Satan's power, then they are as well." Then he drops the hammer. He confronts them with the sober reality of God's kingdom overcoming the kingdom of Satan. See, that moment, that is an authoritative moment. There's no battle. There's no wrestling. It's not like the demon puts up a good fight. Jesus just simply says, out, and it goes, and the guy speaks, and he's free. It's a demonstration of authority. And he says, if I'm doing that by the power of God, then you have witnessed today, the kingdom of God moving in and taking over this broken world. Not fully, but it's beginning. The kingdom of God has come near you and you must respond to that. That's what the kingdom of God does. So the healing work of Jesus signals the authoritative inbreaking of God's kingdom. It's an audio visual of sorts of God's victorious rule. And then it begs the question: which side are you on? Like everybody in that crowd, and every person reading this passage afterward has to answer that question. Which side are you on? There are two sides. They exist. They're real. And you and I are on one or the other. Look at verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Just for clarity, the strong man here he's referencing is Satan. He's basically saying, well, and I'll say the the palace is referring to a person. Uh, We're called temples. Um, We're vessels that can be inhabited. And so he's basically painting a picture here. Satan comes in and takes over in a sort of a palace, a vessel, a temple. And as long as he is not opposed by anyone stronger than him, he stays, he controls, he rules. But when somebody comes along who's stronger and kicks him out, it changes everything. There are two kingdoms. One is stronger than the other and Jesus is trying to make it very clear. I am the stronger one. I just demonstrated that. I I wrote down 1 John 4.4. This is a literal demonstration of uh, John's words. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's what just happened here. And so he's saying, in light of that, the bottom line is Two kingdoms, one is stronger than the other. I am the stronger one. If you're with me, we're good. If you're not, we're opposed. You can't be anything less than an enemy unless you're a friend. The exorcism definitively signals victory for Jesus defeat for Satan and only two sides. So there's no middle ground. There's no sort of in-between, no neutral territory. All of us are either for or against. We're either gathering people into the kingdom of God or we are scattering them further into the kingdom of darkness. Now, this raises a a little bit of a challenge that we're going to get to in this next section, but I just wanna make a, a quick statement. And that is, if you know Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit, we're told in Ephesians. You are a vessel, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Satan cannot inhabit a vessel that is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Christians cannot be, quote, possessed. However, Christians can be oppressed. We can be affected. We can be influenced. So as we're talking about this, if you're a believer, if you have entrusted your life to Christ, I don't want you to misunderstand here that Satan can somehow come in and unseat the Holy Spirit because he can't. We've just seen that the power belongs to Christ. But but this idea of being for and against Christ, I think it still has some application for us. I would just simply say, how are you living? If you go, well, I'm just, I'm fine. I mean, I'm pro-Jesus. But that's as much as it is. Like it's just I'm, I'm sympathetic to the cause. That sounds like against according to the way Jesus describes it. Does that make sense? If you're not for, if you're not engaged, if you're not invested in the kingdom of God and his redemptive work, then there's only one other thing and that is to be against. To be passive is to be against. It's not performance. You're not earning anything. It's just a matter of how will you live your life and myself as well. He's he's drawing two very clear distinctions. If you believe that you can somehow be excused from this invisible war, which is going on 24-7 all the time, then you're not only mistaken, you're in grave danger, spiritually speaking. Spiritual vacancy is a perilous vulnerability. And again, spiritual vacancy can be a condition. Like if you're a non-Christian, that is the ultimate spiritual vacancy. And that's what Jesus is gonna speak to here. But if we are walking kind of in our own way, just kind of doing our own thing, then we are also vulnerable to the oppressive influence of the enemy. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, like it did with the man in this story, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Once again, if if we approach all of this just as sort of this sci-fi or fantasy novel or what like, it's just kind of interesting symbols and signs and all that, we are missing it in a big way. He's saying, literally, there are spiritual beings. This man was possessed by a demon. Jesus casts that demon out. Then he says, okay, so here's what the condition of that man is. He is, spiritually speaking, vacant. There's nobody there. There's nobody inhabiting his house. And it looks clean, just like when nobody's living in a house, right? It's, It's swept, it's in order. If the demon comes back and finds it still vacant, then it's just like Motel 6. Man, we leave the lights on. Come on in. And he brings others with him. And his condition is worse than when he was possessed at the beginning. Man, that is sobering. So the idea here is just to be be made clean to be emptied of that demonic presence, that's just the beginning. That space needs to be filled with something. Really, it needs to be filled with someone in order to be secure. Deliverance without conversion ultimately leaves a man or woman in worse condition, not better I'll say it again, Christians cannot be possessed by Satan or demons, but Christians can be oppressed. And so if your life is really just passive spiritually, I do think you open yourself up to spiritual influence that would set you back and set back the kingdom of God in your life and through your life. Now there is this really awkward moment that comes at the end of this passage. It's, it's kind of curious, but it, Jesus takes advantage of the opportunity. And I wanna kind of come right off the passage before it. He's talking about a spirit leaving and then coming back and taking over in horrible condition. I mean, it's like uh, seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And I kind of think everybody would be like, what? (laughs) What does that have to do with what we're talking about here? I, I don't know why she said it. I, I think maybe she was inspired. Maybe she was kind of moved with all that was going on. She saw the exorcism and, and she just wanted to affirm Jesus. I mean, they're calling him Beelzebub, So she's maybe just trying to balance the scales. But she missed it. Jesus is going, listen, yes, Mary was, was blessed having me as her son. No doubt about it but that's not what we're talking about here. Then he clarifies. He's not unkind, but he does clarify. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now given all that we've just been talking about, that's very insightful in terms of how do we fill the space. Now spiritually speaking, if you entrust your life to Christ, you are indwelt by the literal Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in you. But you have to fill your life, your mind, your heart, everything about you with the Word of God. It just doesn't come by osmosis out there. And He has spoken. So He's given you what you need to know so that you can walk well in the kingdom of God going forward. Blessing on the battlefield, which we all want. If we embrace this idea that we are in an invisible war that is always going on and we're in the crossfire, we want blessing, don't we? Don't we want to live a blessed life? So here's the deal. Blessing on the battlefield amid the onslaught of spiritual attack is gained as God's word and God's spirit take up residence in us and carry out the renovation of our hearts. That's the deal. That's how we actively engage with Jesus. That's how we are with him. That's how we gather, as he put it. It's said this way in 2 Corinthians 3 through five. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is taking the word of God in the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit and aligning our lives with it, with a heart of obedience. He mentions, Paul does in Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare, and that should send our attention over to Ephesians 6, where uh, he describes the armor of God. Uh, I'm not going to go through this. What I want to ask you to do is to take some time this week. Don't let time go by. This is fresh on your mind. So go to Ephesians 6 and read this passage, 10 through 18, and you're going to find these six things that are described by Paul as our armor, our weapons for warfare. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and sword of the Spirit. And each of those things move us into action. And that's what the other side of the slide is. I want to give you a moment as a, as a so what. Man, there's a lot here in there? <laughs> a lot to, to think about. Um, maybe it goes all the way back to how you responded to those survey questions at the beginning. Um, maybe you're wrestling with which side you're on. And that may be a spiritual condition question or it just may also be a lifestyle question. Like I have trusted in Christ, but I'm really living as if this war isn't going on. So I wanna invite you. I think the Holy Spirit would invite you into the battle. So what does that look like? Here's the weapons of warfare that really lay out how you and I engage proactively this fight of the kingdom take a moment prayerfully ask the lord to show you how to respond to this passage